Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by David Robson, an award-winning science writer who's published in major newspapers and magazines around the world on the brain, the body, and our behavior. His 2022 book, The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Change Your World, has earned wide acclaim, including winning the British Psychological Society Book Award. It's now out in paperback and is a must-read for those who want to understand the interplay between our expectations and experiences. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book's findings, including how our expectations shape our health, happiness, and overall lives. David, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Um, Thanks so much, Sean. It's a real pleasure to be chatting to you about this. Let's start with the basic question. Why did you write this book? What were you looking to discover? And what societal perceptions were you aiming to challenge? Mm, Yeah, I mean, so there was kind of, it was a mixture of my kind of intellectual curiosity in the kind of scientific research, but also personal experience. And the two actually collided. So um, as a science writer, I'd often written about the placebo effect. And I'd always found that research, you know, fascinating how our expectations of a, a sham treatment could actually shape not only our subjective perceptions of you know, feeling better, but you could also see some physiological changes. So the example that I kept on coming across was with pain relief, that actually when you believe you're taking a drug like morphine, your brain actually starts producing its own endogenous opioids. Um, so that was always fascinating to me that there was this mind-body connection. Um, but then, you know, as at the BBC, I was re- researching a piece about the opposite of the placebo effect, which is the nocebo effect. And that's where your expectations of illness can actually cause you to become sick through many of the same biological pathways. And that's quite common in people who are taking different medications that they can start to experience these side effects, even if they're taking a um, sugar pill, you know, a dummy pill. Um, And I was writing this piece, you know, researching how nocebo effects can pass from person to person, you know, what kind of um, causes the, uh, patients to develop these nocebo symptoms. And it just happened that I was actually put on a um, a course of pills by my own doctor who um, kind of warned me that they might cause headaches as a side effect. And then I started experiencing these, you know, really um, like quite severe headaches, you know, that lasted all day, were like a huge distraction from my work. Um, but, you know, um, just by coincidence, the fact that I was researching that that piece at roughly the same time 
I kind of looked into the science to see if actually nocebo effects were common with this kind of pill. And I found that, you know, in the clinical trials that people taking the dummy pills, you know, had headaches almost as commonly as the people who were taking the real active pill. So the chances were that I was experiencing a nocebo effect and that my pain was caused by this expectation. And, you know, that realization actually provided enormous amount of pain relief for me. Um, you know, it took about a day, I guess, for m my mind to kind of process that information. But um, very quickly, I, you know, was totally free from that side effect. And, you know, that, well, for the first, first firstly, it kind of helped me to realize that, you know, when we talk about these expectation effects, like they're very difficult to distinguish from the real kind of direct biological cause. Um, and that actually, you know, it's completely impossible for me to tell the difference between the nocebo headache and a kind of any other headache. And that actually, when you look into the research, the physiological changes are the same and that you can measure changes in the neurochemistry and the vasculature of the um within the brain that might be causing the pain. So, you know, they there's such a big overlap between the purely physical and the mental that we can't really distinguish the two very, very easily. And so that just got me thinking, well, where else do expectation effects have a role, you know, in our lives? And it turned out the more I looked, that actually it's not just in medicine, you know, it's not restricted to kind of our responses to medications, but actually it's shaping how how we respond to exercise, how we respond to a new diet, how we respond to sleep loss, and even how we age. You know, your longev longevity can be shaped by your beliefs about aging. And that seems like such a profound new understanding of ourselves and the human body. Um, but I really wanted to tell that story and also to look at the ways that we could use the expectation effect to our advantage. As you say, David, your personal experience is reflective of this broader research that you outline in the book. As you explain expectations, quote, shape your health and well-being in profound ways, and learning to reset our expectations can have truly remarkable effects on health, happiness, and productivity, unquote. Before we get into the outcomes, I want to talk a bit about expectations themselves. Let me ask you a two-part question. First, what are expectations? How would you describe them? And second, how much control do we have over our expectations? To what extent are they operating at an unthinking, almost subconscious level? Mm, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that is um, something that I do try to kind of tackle in the book. I mean, first of all, I would say our expectations are malleable, um, whether or not, you know, they are kind of initially kind of conscious or subconscious, the research is very clear that actually learning about the expectation effect does give you the power to kind of shape your expectations. Um, but, you know, broadly, I would say, you know, expectations are these kinds of underlying beliefs and assumptions that we have about the way the world is working, um, or about ourselves and our own body and what's happening within our bodies. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes we're very conscious of those expectations um, as being a particular expectation we know that it might be subjective but i think often we're not really aware that we take it as a fact and we think that it is just the way things are and that it's totally objective um and that i think is where the expectation effects really become quite powerful especially with these negative expectation effects you know if you just assume that you don't have um 
the kind of physical ability to do and enjoy exercise. And you you just carry that belief without really questioning it or interrogating it. That's going to have an effect, say, then on your kind of performance in the gym, how much you enjoy um, working out, you know, and how what kind of improvements you see in the long term. Um, now, what when I say that, you know, our expectations and beliefs are malleable, I'm not kind of asking people to kind of go around with this kind of Pollyanna-ish view um, where everything is rose-tinted and like we're always just trying to to be kind of unrealistically optimistic. But I actually think just questioning those assumptions and recognising them for what they are, just having that kind of open mind can itself be very powerful. And that was what I experienced when I was dealing with that nocebo effect with those headaches was it wasn't like I was repeating a mantra to myself uh, telling me myself that I wasn't feeling the pain. I just opened my mind up to the possibility that it might not be inevitable that the pills themselves were causing that. And, you know, in that particular case, and in many other cases, it seems that that is enough in itself to cause some kind of benefit and relief from what we're suffering. You mentioned optimism, David. I want to take up that subject, if that's okay. Why are some people more or less prone to optimistic expectations than others? What's the role of body and, and mind in explaining our more pessimistic friends and family members? Is it a learned behavior or does it have some physiological origin? Mm, I mean, as with lots of things about the human mind, it's a combination of both. So, you know, you do see that there are some genes that could change, you know, the um, balance of neurotransmitters in your brain that might predispose you to being a bit more cheerful or a bit more pessimistic. Um, but also, obviously, I think we learn it. And I think we learn it from a young age, from conversations with our parents who can kind of, they coach us in the ways to see the world and how to interpret and frame different events. And then we carry that with us later in life. Um, but we also have the power to change that. And uh, you know, through these techniques, many of which are kind of borrowed from cognitive behavioral therapy, which is used to treat conditions like depression, but which also seems to be very relevant in also dealing with these negative expectation effects. Um, I'd also say, you know, even if you're generally a pessimistic or optimistic person, that doesn't mean you're going to be pessimistic or optimistic in every single area of your life. And that's what we really see with these expectation effects is that you might have positive expectations about your fitness, you know, more negative expectations about how you're going to age, the effects of sleep loss, you know, all of these things are quite independent of each other. So um, that's one of the things that I try to teach in the book is that we need to kind of interrog interrogate each expectation that we're holding rather than just try to adopt an, a generally positive or generally negative attitude. It's all about the specific details. What's the interrelationship between one's own expectations and the transmission effect from society? How do the people around us and the norms and values of our community and society influence our outlooks? Yeah, I mean, cultural norms are like a huge source of kind of expectation for us you know we're social creatures and we you know we absorb these beliefs and actually that often is why we don't question them because we're so used to hearing other people have the same beliefs and i would say the classic example of this is the idea that stress is inherently debilitating um we hear that so often you know, you can trace it back to like articles in the British Medical Journal from the 19th century, 
you know, they were saying that the kind of stress of this steam train was um, causing people to have excess heart attacks. Um, but then you can, you you know, we just have so much in all of the, the media telling us like, you know, stress is bad for you. You need to suppress your stress. Um, you know, we need to just uh, eliminate stress from our lives. Um, but actually, this scientific research, you know, tells a different story. Um, and that is that um, like stress is uncomfortable, but it can also serve a purpose. And that was the reason that we evolved the stress response. And it's not always a case of either you're super relaxed or you're kind of in the fight or flight mode, but we have different stress responses that can be that are adaptive for different situations. And what the research shows is that when you teach people that different way of looking at stress and recognizing that sometimes it can, you know, it can bring you energy, kind of it can when your heart is racing, it's pumping oxygenated blood around your body, and that's the source of energy. Uh, to give just one example, when you teach people about this more nuanced view of stress, um, actually, they then respond to stressful events in a, a different way. They have a more productive stress response that's healthy for the body and also promotes things like creativity and more proactivity in their problem solving. But the fact is, it's our culture that had kind of led us down this one path. And it's only recently with this scientific research that we're learning how to question that assumption, that cultural assumption, and to look at it in a more nuanced way. So yeah, culture is very important. One final contextual question before we dig into some of the specific examples in the book. If there is this interrelationship, David, between the individual and the society or culture when it comes to expectations, is it possible that societies would be collectively more or less optimistic than others? Could you say, for instance, that on balance, the United States is collectively more or less optimistic than, say, the United Kingdom or Canada? Or is that not the right way to think about it? I'm sure that could be true. But I would say, actually, again, it's all about the specific beliefs and whether they're more or less common. So, for example, in the UK and the US, we very much have this belief that willpower is limited and easily depleted. So, we, you know, it's like a resource that runs out very quickly, which is why we believe that, you know, if you're under, on a diet, the more you kind of resist uh, kind of snacking during the day, the harder it's going to be at night to not then go to McDonald's um, for fast food. Um, but actually, you know, we don't see that that belief is universal at all. And actually, in countries like India, there seems to be a, a different prevailing belief. And that is that the more you practice willpower, the easier that it becomes. And then that is manifested in their behavior um, and how they experience different challenges. Um, so, you know, I think, yeah, even at the level of specific beliefs, we do see that different cultures transmit different ways of viewing um, ourselves and our abilities. And that then has an effect on the way we behave and, uh, you know, even some of these physiological measures that I mentioned. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at 
www.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca
you know, implicit biases. Like a teacher might be biased by someone's uh, socioeconomic background, their race, uh, their ethnicity, you know, their gender. Uh, for like um, the science and mathematics, you know, where we have these people have these implicit preconceptions about who's going to be good and who isn't. Um, so it's something that you know very much like our educational institutions need to be aware of. There's some promising research showing that you can educate teachers about this possibility and that actually it really helps if you film them in the classroom and they'll notice the way that they're manifesting those beliefs in ways that they might not have been conscious of before. And that seems to help. Um, I think we can also, you know, do kind of uh, help the students themselves um, because one of the big problems is that if your teacher is kind of showing that they don't have faith in your abilities, that produces this kind of lack of confidence, a lack of self-efficacy, which is bad for motivation. It also creates a lot of anxiety in the exam hall itself. So actually teaching people, you know, ways to reframe stress can be very useful. So telling them that actually when they feel anxious, that might actually be powering them to do to do better, to, to actually achieve more in the exam, you know, that can be helpful. Practicing an exercise called self-affirmation, which is, um, it sounds a bit uh, kind of pseudoscientific, but it's, it's not, it's, um, it, this is actually like, self-affirmation is just getting children to realize that they're kind of bigger than the individual problem they're facing. So it's telling them to, you know, list, say, 10 qualities about themselves that they're proud of, or 10 values that they have. And it could be anything from their musicality to their kind of sense of humor, their friendships, their, you know, what a good family member they are. But what that does is it builds up this, this sense that they are, you know, strong, effective individuals. And that can be a kind of antidote to the anxiety that they're feeling in the particular exam. So yeah, we have lots of, there's lots of different ways that this can be approached. And I think it is very, um, very promising that actually a lot of these interventions don't have to be very expensive. Um, and they can make a difference. That's really powerful, David. Just in parentheses, I've seen some public policy research that shifting post-secondary grants from when a student enters university or college to much earlier, giving them an amount earmarked for them in a personalized account beginning, say, in elementary school, changes their expectations about the possibility of attending university or college in the future. In effect, it expands the horizons of students who, for socioeconomic reasons or family reasons or whatever, may not envision a future in which they can attend university or college. So there, as you say, are different ways in which relatively small changes to public policy can account for the power of the expectations effect in quite positive ways. If I can shift the conversation to your discussion of expectations and aging, you write the quote, beliefs about the aging process may be as important for your long-term well-being as your actual age, unquote. How do our beliefs and expectations influence the aging process? Yeah, I mean, that is, um, it sounds incredible. And so I would say, you know, of all the expectation effects I examined, that was the one that really caught my attention um, the most, but also I went into it the most skeptical uh, because I felt like you really had to kind of join the dots there and make sure the claims stood up. And they did, you know, so there was, a big study in um, 2002, so 21 years ago, that kind of launched this. And it showed that, um, you know, pe 
you ask people about their beliefs about aging and midlife, you know, whether they think their life is going to get better or worse or stay the same, that that predicted their longevity decades later. And the difference between having the positive or negative beliefs was about seven and a half years. So, you know, very big effect is like, if we knew there was some lifestyle difference that was going to cause that kind of change in longevity, we would be taking action against it. And, you know, even something like the levels of cholesterol in your blood, you know, um, that, you know, it's comparable to those. So it's, it really is something that we we should be taking seriously. Um, but since that 2002 paper, there's been a lot of research, you know, replicating this, looking specifically at the risks of different diseases like Alzheimer's disease and cardiovascular disease. You know, in each case, age beliefs made a difference. And then the researchers also looked at the mechanisms. Um, and, you know, behavior is a big big one, obviously. If you have positive beliefs about aging, you're more likely to look after your health. Um, it just seems worth it. And you're, you know, less scared of doing exercise. Um, but equally importantly, um, it's changing the way you appraise the different challenges that you might face. And so you can imagine if you feel very negative about aging and you're expecting it to involve this inevitable decline and disability and forgetfulness, all of the challenges you face in your life, like going to the post office, meeting new people, driving to a new location, they're going to feel more stressful. Um, that changes, you know, that produces this kind of chronic stress response. So like day after day, you're having heightened cortisol, but it's never really like, you know, changing that much. It's not really, um, you're not really having a rest period between the different challenges. Um, it's raising things like inflammation, which the body the body increases inflammation when it feels under threat because it's inflammation can be an effective way to deal with injuries. So it's kind of preempting injuries. Um, but in the long term, that stress response, the increased inflammation, they cause bodily wear and tear. They're damaging to tissues. Um, and we can see the effects of this at the level of the individual cell. So um, in people with the positive beliefs, they show fewer signs of aging in the um, epigenetic changes that occur within a cell naturally. So their biological clock seems to be ticking a little bit more slowly than the people with those negative beliefs who are experiencing the greater stress and the greater inflammation. Um, so, you know, that is why I find it so compelling is that they've not only replicated the results, but then also looked at the mechanism and they've been able to trace it kind of step by step. It's intuitive, but it's still extraordinary. As a follow-up question, David, does the research identify any characteristics or traits that tend to correlate with positive views about aging? I'm thinking, for instance, marriage status or grandchildren or even, say, religious views. Are any of those types of traits more or less likely to be found in those with positive views about the aging process and getting older? Mm, interesting. I mean, there's definitely re re uh, research showing that, say, you know, being married or, you know, just having stronger um, social relationships in general. So having, you know, a close group of friends and lots of support, that that can um, reduce aging and um, or reduce the effects of aging. And similarly, uh, you know, going to church is a social activity. Um, religious experiences can also fill us with awe. It gives us meaning in our life. You know, all of these are positive um, positive things that can actually uh, help us to deal with stress. And that's going to help you 
through that transition as you get older. Um, I'm not sure if they are kind of, I would imagine they're kind of correlated with the positive views of aging, but they're not necessarily tightly interconnected. So, you know, you could be religious, but have a negative view of aging still and vice versa. Um, but yeah, we, you know, we know all of those activities are, are good for us. So they're also things that we should be pursuing because they actually work through the same mind-body connection. In terms of resetting our expectations, you argue that, quote, self-control and mental focus can become stronger with practice, like working a muscle, unquote. What can people do to take control of their expectations and direct them in more positive ways? I mean, so I think it, it depends on the situation to a certain extent. Um, but I'll give a few examples, and I think there are common patterns. So, you know, I mentioned about how you know, of aging, we uh, with stress, we might have this view that, um, you know, when, whenever we feel anxious, that that's inevitably a bad thing, and that it's going to cause failure, and that, it, you know, over time, that it's going to cause kind of bodily damage, but that actually a, a more muted stress response that happens, um, you know, on the acute level, but, um, but isn't chronic. So it kind of the stress dissipates after a certain time, and you can go back into a, a restaurant, uh, uh, relax and digest state. You know, we know that actually that can be very beneficial. And actually just learning about those benefits, but then also learning how to reappraise, um, you know, what you're experiencing. So when your heart's racing, rather than kind of catastrophizing that and going through this negative cycle of thinking where you're, you you know, if I was giving a talk and I would, uh, you know, be a bit nervous about the talk, my heart would be racing, then I'd think, well, if my heart's racing, I must be really anxious. If I'm anxious, I'm going to perform badly. If I perform badly, then I'm going to, you know, embarrass myself, you know, and going through that kind of uh, worst case thinking, you know, we can nip that in the bud by just re reappraising the initial sensation. So we can just tell ourselves that actually, the heart racing is not necessarily a bad thing, and that actually it can have the benefits. And then that prevents all of the worst case uh, thinking that catastrophic thinking. Um, so that's the kind of process I'm talking about. You know, learning about the science can be useful for doing that. But I think just having this awareness of when you're going down this catastrophic spiral is really important and trying to question your assumptions as soon as you notice that you might be doing that. So with stress, you know, just questioning, is it inevitable that if I feel anxious, I'm going to fail? And the answer is, you know, no, it's not. Um, if you're on the treadmill and you start to get very, um, feel a bit uncomfortable with, you know, the kind of, if you feel breathless, your muscles are aching, like you might, again, you might start telling yourself that it's a sign of your lack of fitness, that you should be ashamed of yourself, you know, that um, you're never going to get fit. You know, your mind can similarly go through this negative spiral. Um, but actually just asking yourself whether those symptoms are inherently bad or are they actually desirable? Because are they just a sign that you're, you know, while you're on the treadmill, that you're pushing your body to its current limit. And then that in itself is leading to growth later on. Um, the research shows that if you do that, it not only makes the whole experience more pleasant, it actually helps to improve your performance. Um, so this is, I think that's the fundamental rule is looking to kind of just question your assumptions and to stop yourself going down the um, catastrophic route. You know, again, it's having an open mind. Um, without telling yourself in the gym, I'm going to be an Olympic athlete. You know, you don't have to tell yourself something like unrealistic like that to get the benefits. It's it's actually just 
you know, learning to put things in perspective and to not be overly negative. And what you find is that over time, you know, you, you'll find like an improvement, you know, that day. And then if you focus on your trajectory and just, you know, focus on the fact that step by step you're getting better, then you might be really surprised by what you achieve. And you might be surprised that actually your trajectory is much more positive and much quicker than you had ever thought it could have been. Yeah, that's a great segue, David, into my penultimate question. What are the limits of this type of thinking? Presumably our beliefs alone can't make us NBA basketball players or exceedingly rich. How should we think about the opportunities and limits of having greater intentionality with respect to our beliefs and expectations? Right. I mean, you know, I'd say expectations are like an important ingredient, you know, to reaching our goals. They're kind of an an important element of our ability to reach our goals, but they're not the one and only element. And I think that's important to acknowledge. Um, So, you know, in different situations, there might be kind of um, uh, systemic barriers, you know, within our culture that are going to make it harder for you to, to achieve what you want to. There might be internal kind of limitations that you have, like expectations can't, like you said, make you a basketball player if you don't have, you know, if you have totally the wrong physique uh, to to be a good basketball player. But I see them more, our expectations as they're like, they could be like a break on your progress. So they could constantly, if you have negative expectations, they're like constantly dragging you back. And if you shift the way you're looking at the situations, you reframe the situations in the way I've described, then you're taking those breaks off of your progress. And you'll find that you can progress much more quickly. And, you know, if you set your goals to be realistic, you'll get to them much more quickly. But yeah, it's not the, by no means the only thing affecting our success, but it certainly is a way of limiting our success and making all of the effort that we're putting in, you know, whether it's doing those workouts, changing our diet, you know, studying hard. If we have negative expectations, it's limiting how effective that is. And just by changing your expectations, you can actually make sure that you you achieve the most that you could with the work that you have put in. Yeah, I just say in parentheses that I use the word intentionality with some intentionality because a major takeaway for me in the book is that a lot of these negative expectations are too infrequently scrutinized by people that we're constrained by our expectations without even fully being cognizant of it. And so for me, a major lesson is just to be a bit more discerning about my expectations and how they're influencing the way I think about different challenges in my life. Final question. You've been writing about the body and mind for a long time. What's the one thing you discovered in researching this book that surprised you the most? I mean, so I'd say the aging, the research on the aging mindset, you know, I found very surprising, shocking even to start with. And that um, completely transformed the way I look at, you know, my own kind of life and how, you know, how I hope to kind of age as I get older. So, you know, I Besides looking at the science, I also spoke to, you know, some really amazing people like um, Paddy Jones, who's the world's oldest acrobatic salsa dancer. And she only started uh, kind of dancing professionally in her 60s after her husband passed away. Now, you know, she's performed all over the world. She was at the San Romo Music Festival. She's appeared on, you know, game um, kind of reality shows in uh, like Dancing with the Stars in Argentina, you know, in Britain. In Germany, you know, she's really uh, made this amazing career for her. It's like a second lease of life. Um, 
And so I think looking to people like that was really, has been really important for me to just kind of, to recognize that you can question your assumptions about, you know, the course your life is taking, you can try to take on your opportunities and to push yourself out of your comfort zone. And, you know, you can do that slowly. I don't think that we should all be kind of taking on, you know, insurmountable challenges straight away. But, you know, you can do that. And with the right expectations, with the right mindset, you can be really surprised by what you can achieve um, just by slowly pushing against your boundaries. That's a great message to wrap up our conversation. The book is The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Change the World. David Robson, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for the great questions. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada, or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.